Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. And I'm going to read and preach verses 33 and 34 this morning of Romans 8. Verses 33 and 34. The Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues a series of questions that he began a few verses earlier. And the questions and their answers are meant to help us understand and apply the truths that he referred to back in verse 29 and verse 30, what's been called the golden chain of salvation, a golden chain with five links. God foreknew us and predestined us and called us and justified us and will one day glorify us. That's the golden chain of salvation in verses 29 and 30. And after that golden chain comes this series of question and answer, which again is meant to help us understand and apply that golden chain of salvation. Look at verse 31, which we looked at last week. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And those questions just keep coming in our verses this morning, and we'll look at them together and consider their answers. And by the grace of God, I think we'll come away with a greater appreciation for the truth that this whole chapter began with, that there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By God's grace, I hope we'll also come away with a clearer sense for how to live in light of that truth for the glory of God. So let's pray and ask for his help, and then we'll begin. God, we thank you for the great gospel truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not because we don't deserve condemnation, we do, but because, God, you have justified us. And because Jesus, you died and rose again for us and ascended into heaven. And even now you are interceding for us before the Father. Therefore, there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ by faith. We pray that you would give us a greater appreciation for that truth and give us also a clearer sense for how to live in light of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Reading Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, and I remind us that these are the very words of God. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Two points this morning. You can see them there in your sermon notes. Q&A number one, charges versus justification. Then Q&A number two, condemnation versus redemption. Q&A number one is about charges versus justification. Paul asks the question at the beginning of verse 33 there, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then he answers, it is God who 
justifies. So charges versus justification. I want you to notice three things here under this first main point. Number one, notice how we are described as believers in verse 33, how we're described. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We are described as God's elect, meaning those God chose to save before there was time. Not because he looked forward in time and saw that we would one day believe, but simply because it was according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. He chose us. He chose to save us before there was time. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Romans 11.5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. One more, 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are who we are as believers, not because we chose God, but because he chose us. We did choose him when we turned from our sin and believed in him, But we were only able to do that because he had first chosen us. We did exercise our wills and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but only because he had first renewed our wills and freed them from the bondage to sin they were in. We are rightly called believers because we have believed in Jesus Christ, but we are also rightly called God's elect because God chose us for salvation. And God choosing us happened long before we chose him. It preceded our faith and actually ultimately empowered our faith. As the old hymn writer put it, my Lord, I did not choose you for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. We are God's elect as believers by sheer sovereign grace and let's allow the simple reminder of that this morning in verse 33 to grow us downward in humility a bit more and upward in joyful praise of God for our salvation and outward in cheerful service of one another and of others like a giant oak tree. Let's grow downward in humility, upward in praise, and outward in service by the grace of God. So that's how we're described in verse 33. We are God's elect. Notice secondly, under this first main point, notice the question Paul's asking. Who shall bring any charge 
against God's elect? Who shall bring any accusation against God's elect? Now, Paul's not saying that nobody brings accusations against us. He's not saying that nobody brings charges against us. Rather, he's saying that none of the charges will stick because we've already been justified by God. The charges are like one side of a strip of Velcro, the side with the hooks. But they don't stick to us because we don't have any loops. We've already been justified by God. So none of those charges, none of those accusations will stick. So the question is similar to the one in verse 31. Again, look back there, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Meaning not that nobody can be against us, but nobody can be against us and win because God is for us. Similar idea here. The question is, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Meaning not that nobody can bring charges against us, but nobody can bring charges against us that'll stick because God is the one who has already justified us. Doesn't mean nobody's gonna try. It means nobody's gonna succeed in that endeavor. Well, who is it that tries? Who is it that tries to bring charges against us as the people of God? Well, there are three entities, I would say. The first is the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world sometimes brings charges against us as God's people, whether it be in the headlines or in the lunch line, in the newsroom or in the classroom, on social media or in a social gathering with your neighbors. Even when we seek to reflect the character of Christ and to bear a kind and loving witness to others, sometimes still we might be charged with many things. We might be charged with things like bigotry or homophobia or arrogance or closed-mindedness because we're saying that Jesus is the only way to God. Sometimes we may be charged with hypocrisy or being out of touch with reality. Sometimes the charge may be that we're fanatics or religious zealots. There are many different charges the unbelieving world may bring against us. And to a certain degree, that's unavoidable and to be expected. Jesus said to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We're not on the same team as the world anymore. We're on the opposing team. We wear a different jersey. We have a different captain. We play for a different coach. We're on team church now, not team world. So we shouldn't expect the unbelieving world to treat us like fellow teammates. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So to have these charges brought against us by the unbelieving world around us is unavoidable and to be expected. But of course, we shouldn't make it easy on them. We shouldn't make ourselves easy targets. We should seek to be humble in our witness, not prideful. We should seek to be gracious towards others, not prickly and off-putting. 
We should seek to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, as it says in Colossians 4, making sure our speech is always gracious and seasoned with salt. We should be the salt of the earth, just not pouring salt in people's wounds. We should be the light of the world, just not shining our flashlight in people's eyes. But even when we do walk in wisdom toward outsiders, even when we do live a godly life in Christ Jesus, even when we do bear the fruit of the Spirit as we bear witness, still at times we will be persecuted. Still at times the unbelieving world will bring charges against us. But the unbelieving world is not our only prosecutor. Secondly, there's the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself. Though the world can often be fairly off target when it comes to the charges it brings against us, Satan is usually closer to the mark. He's been practicing. He's been perfecting his methods and honing his timing for thousands of years now. And he's very good at what he does. Sometimes he accuses us before God, like when he stood before God and accused Job. Other times he accuses us directly, whispering accusations in our ear, as it were. Sometimes he's wrong or a bit off, but sometimes he's right. Sometimes he points his finger at something you did that was truly wrong. Sometimes the charge he holds in his hand is a sin that you really did commit. And when that's the case, that is when we need to remember the answer that Paul gives, which we'll look at in just a minute, that it is God who justifies. When Satan accuses us, we need to remember that God has already justified us. Like we sing, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within... Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So when Satan points to your sin, point to the Savior. When he points to these charges, point to the cross. Remember that the sinless Savior has already died for you. Remember that God the just has already justified you. More often than the unbelieving world or the accuser of the brethren, though, there's a third entity that I think most often brings charges against us, and it is our own conscience. Our own conscience. Kids, Remember that your conscience is your sense of right and wrong. It's what makes you feel bad and guilty when you've done something wrong or what makes you feel good when you've done something right. That's your conscience. It's like an alarm that goes off when you're doing something wrong, an alarm bell, or a good bell that dings when you're doing something right. And our own conscience can sometimes bring charges against us. And when it's functioning properly, when it's informed by the word of God, those charges can be right on target. 
Sometimes our conscience can be dull and the alarm doesn't go off when it should. Other times our conscience can be overly sensitive and the alarm goes off when it shouldn't. But there are plenty of times when our conscience is functioning properly and it brings many charges against us. And we know that we are guilty as charged. We know that if we made a list of all our actions and all our words and all our thoughts and all our desires, we could be charged with pretty much every crime in the book. We could be brought up on all charges. If our conscience brought charges against us for everything bad we've ever done or thought about doing or wanted to do, you'd have to back a dump truck into the courtroom to unload all of them. You'd open the tailgate and tilt the bed of the dump truck up and all the charges would come tumbling out, cascading out onto the floor in dramatic fashion. And there we sit, as the accused, staring at all the charges in front of us. And at the table for the prosecution is the unbelieving world, the devil, and our own conscience, all standing there pointing at the charges. But our defense, sitting at the table with us, is Jesus Christ. And God the Father is the judge. And the judge looks at all those charges And he sees all of them. He sees them even more clearly than the prosecution sees them. He sees them even more clearly than we see them. But then he looks at his son. And then he clears us of all those charges. And declares us not guilty. And in our amazement, we look more closely at the pile of charges in front of us on the floor, and we notice that on each one of them is stamped, paid in full, because Jesus paid them all. And then we look down at ourselves, and we notice that our outfit has changed. We are no longer dressed in the filthy rags of our own righteousness that we came into the courtroom with. We are dressed, rather, in the spotless righteousness of Christ. And because of all that, God the judge declares us not guilty on all counts. And though we deserve condemnation, we receive justification. That's the third thing we should notice under this first main point here. Number one was to notice how we're described, God's elect. Number two was to notice the question he asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Number three is to notice the answer he gives. The answer he gives. It is God who justifies. It is God who has justified us, who has declared us righteous in his sight. It is God who has rendered the verdict of not guilty in the courtroom of his perfect justice. Even though the unbelieving world, the devil and our own conscience bring charges against us, they don't stick because God has already justified us. Every single one of the charges has already been paid in full by Christ on the cross. And we have been outfitted with the perfect righteousness of Christ. God the just has already justified us. No one can say, you're guilty, when God has already said, 
you are not guilty. The unbelieving world may condemn us. The devil may condemn us. Our own conscience may condemn us. But God has already justified us. And his verdict is the only one that matters. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God has justified us, who can bring a charge against us? When these entities try to bring charges against us, they are bringing charges against those God has already elected and already justified. So when the world, the devil, or your own conscience try to haul you back into court, remember that God has already justified you. If you've sinned, turn from that sin. Confess that sin to God. Receive his forgiveness and his cleansing through faith in his son. And do not let that charge hang over you like a dark cloud. You've been set free of that charge. Don't listen to your accuser. Listen to God. It is God who has already justified you and there is no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. Well, that's Q&A number one. Charges versus justification. Let's more, look more briefly now at our second main point. Q&A number two, condemnation versus redemption. Look at the question Paul asks in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Basically the same question as in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Here it is, who is to condemn? Who is there to condemn us? And the answer is a very strongly implied no. No one. No one can condemn us. Not only because God has already justified us, verse 33, but also because Christ died and rose again for us and ascended into heaven for us and indeed is even now interceding for us. Let's look at each of those four things in turn briefly. Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension, and Christ's intercession. Number one, Christ's death. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ died to atone for our sins. He died as a substitute sacrifice for our sins. He died to pay the penalty for our sin. He died to cancel the debt of our sin. He died to absorb the wrath of God. He died to satisfy the justice of God. He died to reconcile us to God. He died to give us access to God. He died to liberate us from bondage to the devil and to free us from slavery to sin. He died to rescue us from condemnation, both now and at the final judgment. There is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Because Christ was condemned for us. In my place, condemned, he stood. God doesn't require double payment for our sins. Christ already died, and he died once for all. Listen to Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. 
for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Christ died. Number two, Christ rose again. Christ's resurrection. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Now, more than that doesn't mean more important than that. He's not saying the resurrection of Christ was more important than the death of Christ. It's like saying one wing of an airplane is more important than the other. Rather, more than that has the sense of more than just that. That is, it's not just that Jesus died. It's more than just that. It's that he also was raised from the dead. His resurrection was his vindication, the Father's authentication, and our justification. It was his vindication that his claims were all true. It was the Father's authentication that his sacrifice was acceptable. And it was our justification, Romans 4.25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If Christ wasn't raised we would still be condemned. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But since Christ has been raised, we are set free from our sins. If he's still in the tomb, we're still in our sins. But since the tomb is empty, so are all the charges against us of condemnation. Number three, Christ's ascension. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1.3 again from the front of the bulletin. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's like we say in the Apostles' Creed. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Christ's ascension and session at the right hand of God is yet another reason why there's no condemnation for us who are united to him. He is exalted. He is sovereign. He has all authority. Nobody who would seek to condemn us is sitting in a higher position than he is. His is a position of authority and sovereignty and dominion and glory. And the fact that he sat down at the right hand of God after making purification for our sins 
means that the purification for our sins was effective and sufficient. When a hardworking farmer finishes his work for the day, then he sits down. He doesn't sit down until his work is done. Christ sat down at the right hand of God because his work of redemption was finished. He had died, he had risen, he had ascended, and then he sat down. Our righteousness is seated at the right hand of God. Our Savior is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul mentions at the end of Ephesians 1, quote, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And he has been given to us, the church, as head over all things and as our head head over our hearts, head over our lives. And nobody can condemn us when the exalted Christ is our head. Nobody can condemn us when we are his body. Number four, Christ's intercession. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ is praying for us and serving as our high priest and our mediator. Like we heard in the scripture reading from Hebrews 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Like we sang earlier, he ever lives above, pleading for me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. And if he is interceding for us, pleading before his father his precious blood shed for us, then there is no condemnation for us. And it's not because he's a really good lawyer and we're getting off on a technicality. It's because he bled and died to take away our sin. And he intercedes for us on the basis of his finished work. So God has already justified us And Christ already died and rose again for us and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us before the Father. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not today, not on the last day. We won't be condemned on the day of judgment. We'll be acquitted on the day of judgment. Two things I'll say as we draw to a close this morning. First, if there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, make sure you are in Christ Jesus. If you've never repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, do so this morning. Do so even now in your heart. Tell God you see that there are many charges that can rightly be brought against you. Tell God you see that you deserve condemnation because of your many sins. And ask him to help you to truly turn from those sins in your heart. And ask him to help you to truly believe in Jesus for the salvation you need. Put your trust in Christ. Lean all your weight onto him. Look to him in faith as the only one who can save you in that courtroom. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Second, if you're in Christ already, since there's no condemnation for you, make sure you're running on grace, not guilt. Make sure that grace is what's powering your life and your heart, not guilt. Since we've been justified, we don't have to live with guilt constantly gnawing away at our conscience, a low-grade sense of guilt constantly humming in the background of our lives. Since we've been declared not guilty by God the judge, we don't have to carry on our backs the burden of all those charges that could be brought against us. Since there is no condemnation for us, We don't have to live like we're still awaiting the verdict and we're not sure what it's going to be. If we are in Christ, God has already justified us. If we are in Christ, he has died and risen again for us and is seated at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Of course, if we have unconfessed sin, we should repent of that sin. We should confess that sin to God and receive his forgiveness. If we have incurred fresh guilt by our sin, we should repent and receive fresh grace. But then we shouldn't let that guilt hang over us. If it's been paid for by Christ, it does not need to be paid for by you also. If God remembers it no more, you do not need to keep remembering it and rehearsing it in your mind. Guilt should not be what fuels us and motivates us. Grace should be what fuels us and motivates us. So fill up your tank with grace. Fill your mind and heart with justification. And Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and session and intercession. Don't live like a prisoner who's constantly trying to get on the warden's good side. Live like an adopted son 
who already has the love and favor of his father. And because he has his father's favor and love, he desires to please his father in everything he does. There's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. None of the charges that can be brought against us will stick because they've all been paid in full by Jesus. God's verdict of not guilty has already been handed down. We've already been justified. Christ died for us and rose again for us and ascended for us and sat down for us and even now intercedes for us. We have the love and favor of our Heavenly Father. Let us seek to please Him in all we do, in His strength. Let's not run on fumes, on the fumes of our guilt. We have a full tank of grace in Christ. Let's run on that for His glory. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that even though we deserve condemnation because of our sin, in the gospel we receive justification because of Christ. We thank you for justifying us on the basis of the blood and righteousness of your Son. And Jesus, we thank you for all you did for us in your death and resurrection and ascension and session and all that you continue to do in your present intercession for us. Help us this week not to run on fumes, but to run on the full tank of grace we have in you. We pray in your name. Amen.